Welcome back. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com, and this is Raise Your Average. Co-hosting with me today are Mike Philbrick, CEO, and Richard Latterman, Portfolio Manager at Resolve Asset Management. Mike, Richard, thank you for being here. Thanks for always, having me. Always great to get together with Doom Nation and uh, get the Doomy on the tape. It's awesome. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, today's episode is one you won't want to miss. We're delighted to have with us and to bring to you our special guest, the head of the Doomberg team, maestros at deciphering the complex symphony of the financial world. The Doomberg team are known for their uncanny ability to recognize patterns before they emerge and connect the dots between topics you'd never think related. They've mastered the art of making the intricate realms of finance accessible to all of us. It's all about breaking down the complex, and there's no one better at it. Doomberg's insights are highly sought after by our community of advisors, ultra high net worth investors, family offices, and institutional investors globally. And all of their work can be found very easily at Substack. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Doomberg, welcome. It's a massive honor and a privilege to have you on the show. Well, I mean, after an introduction like that, I feel like let's just call it a wraps. You know, it's all downhill from here. But uh, no, seriously, Pierre, Mike, and Richard, great to talk to you guys again. I uh, love the new format, and I'm uh, looking forward to uh, what I know will be an enjoyable, uh, an enjoyable show. Awesome. Love it. And I think to kick off, Doomy, it, it would be, I think, instructive for you to go through the the journey that brought your, um, your, your highly insightful intellectual team to its era in Substack, and I think the, the most widely read Substack out there. Um, if, if anyone hasn't heard of Doomberg, just look it up in Substack, look it up in Twitter, you'll find it everywhere. Um, but yeah, maybe give us the, the path to this, uh, this um, on your current journey, if you will, because we're not at a destination yet, so. Yeah, you bet. Um, as you mentioned, we're a very small team um, with significant background in the commodity sector. I think unique amongst the content creators that you might come across, um, our background is focused on uh, an industrial setting, working at commodity players, you know, in the real world uh, with, um, you know, quarterly pressures and, and investment decisions and the, the true nature of technology and progress as it relates to helping people. And we, our team, you know, has decades of experience from the commodity sector and very few people from that world are free to participate in the discourse in an authentic way. They're held back by public affairs teams and fear of losing their RSUs or getting canceled or so on. And, uh, and so we bring that lens um, combined with our finance background to talk about energy finance in the world at large. Um, our journey is we uh, left the corporate world several years ago to build a consulting firm. That was great until COVID hit. And like many small business owners, we lost the vast majority of our business virtually overnight. And we had a serious decision to make. We, we call it a high pucker factor moment um, in the throes of, of the spring of 2020. And we decided to reinvent ourselves on the advice of a very famous hedge fund manager um, to help those who work in the content creation space who sell into Wall Street, um, to help those people run their businesses better. Uh, and that was a great success and allowed us to keep our independence. And um, over time, 
we, we discovered um, through the encouragement of one of our anchor clients that we could actually do this ourselves. And in May of 2021, we launched Doomberg as a, as a side project. And the, the success has been mind-blowing and unexpected and humbling and thrilling and life-altering. And we very quickly um, focused on Doomberg and, and made Doomberg the thing that we do and, and kept just a very small list of our ideal anchor clients and have been doing Doomberg full-time since we went paid in April of last year. And as you mentioned, we are uh, the number one paid finance on the subs, uh, uh, paid Substack uh, in the finance category uh, globally, which is pretty amazing. And we write seven to eight pieces a month on, on the topics that we love to do that with no hard deadlines, but we got uh, another one coming out tomorrow and it's just such a great way to live. So I really appreciate the opportunity to give that background. I, th awesome. I think it's, um, um, kind of a, a, an incredible journey for you. And I, I love the idea of moving from the industrial space and, and bringing input and insights from that space, because it is classically a sort of a, I don't want to say non-monetary space, but it's a space where you have to make decisions, um, whether you're a producer, whether you're a consumer, whether you're hedging these things, you have to make actual real tangible decisions that, that are not necessarily coming from a, a monetarist's perspective, right? The, the whole idea of, you know, how you build out your energy stack, how you're going to implement that. Sure, there's funny money on, on one side of it, but on the other side of it is a hard truth of industrial realities and physics and things like that, that I think you do an incredible job at bringing us to the nexus point of some of the real I don't know, rough points, places where, you know, one plus one doesn't equal two, but the politicians or those, um, speaking in the media are suggesting it does. And you do such a great job of that. I'm really looking forward to digging into that. Is, is there anywhere you want to start today? Well, I would just build on that by saying one of the things that we, you know, I personally had to do a lot, um, given that I was on the technology side of the corporate world was to explain to non-scientists why the headline they read in the Wall Street Journal could be safely ignored or is something that they should take um, seriously. And, and I developed over time uh, the ability to write short, tight white papers that would go to the CEO and the board when room temperature superconductor breakthrough number 4000 finds its way <laughs> to the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. And over those years, um, developed a reputation for distilling complexity. And, and when I had that background in the back of my mind, when we developed this uh, you know, vertical in our consulting business, it, it occurred to us that there was a huge inefficiency in the market, that the, the practical, you know, collapsing of the wave function, you know, uh, real world implications of the hype and the headline, which drives many sort of equity movements in the market, um, that, that industrial lens was not being represented. And that inefficiency combined with, I think, a sort of broad failure of the media um, and the succumbing to the need to generate clickbait because of the way Google and Facebook have ruined the traditional media model, um, that is the sort of the nexus that the overlap and the Venn diagram of opportunity that we sit squarely in the middle of. So um, just with that sort of additional background, uh, happy to take it in any direction on, on any of the pieces we've recently published. You're, you're literally the, the rubber between the car and the road, I think, in this case. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe luckily, we pull, you know, I think, I think <laughs> that's a really... pull on that thread. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a really underestimated. Yeah. yeah. By all means, go Sorry, ahead. go ahead, Pierre. I was just going to say, I think that's a really under, um, you know, you know, or, or uh, what's the word under it's a, it's an under recognized area that you're in because nobody actually, 
you know, I don't think I don't think people on the street actually think and sit and wonder, you know, what are CEOs thinking when they read a headline about a competitive innovation, or you know, X, whatever it is, uh, and I don't mean X Twitter. <laughs> uh, I know you just wrote a piece on that, and sure. um, but you got to wonder, like, what the reaction. You, you've obviously invested a lot of time in it, but wondering what the reaction would be from a CEO reading a headline in the Wall Street Journal or anywhere else for that matter, that somebody has come out with a new innovation and, and that CEO has to decide whether to mobilize hundreds of millions of dollars in, right. a, competitive, in a competitive direction in order to, to try and, and you know, match that. And, and so when you can come along and when, when you specifically can come along and tell those you know, C-suite occupiers you know, what they need to know, is this real? Is there any you know, veracity to it? Uh, that's incredibly valuable. So I, if, if you want, I could dig into the, the framework that we use to assess it. And it, it doesn't produce an answer. It produces a range of considerations that an executive who has, you know, an integrated gut level experience over decades could then apply, you know, in a way that cuts through the hype. Um, we, 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 we ask and answer five very simple questions. And maybe we could talk about this room temperature superconductor alleged breakthrough uh, and and dig into that if you're interested, and and this might be useful for the you know the, the RIAs and uh, the other people listening to this because um, it 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 is broadly universally applicable and doesn't really require much in the way of specific scientific expertise uh, in order for it to be useful. But you know after having answered you know a hundred times the same question just on different subjects, we developed this framework. So the five questions are very very simple: um, Who is involved? Where was it published? Uh, where are we in the scientific process? Uh, what is the scientific context? And what should we expect next? And that's a very important one as well, because if you deliver a set of milestones for a CEO, they might not move right away, but if they see one or two more pieces of evidence, they'd be willing to pounce or to avoid. And, and those five questions are really important, and maybe I'll, I'll take them each in order. So who is involved is the most important. And as with all human endeavors, um, the reputation and pedigree of the people involved is an input. It's not determinative, but it is a signpost as to whether this is something that you consider. And as we said in the in the piece where we compared, uh, where we assessed this room temperature superconductor breakthrough, you know, if MIT and Google co-announce in a peer-reviewed journal a, a computing breakthrough, you'd be foolish not to assume, at least for the purposes of decision-making, that they have the goods. Whereas if your neighbor tugs on your sleeve at a party and whispers in your ear about some magic invention that he's been working on in his garage um, that is sure to change the world, uh, you probably would treat that with a healthy degree of skepticism. And, and that's okay. And I look, to be clear, big name institutions and top tier scientists screw up all the time. And occasionally an amateur stumbles on something important, but who is involved is, is a very good first prism to go through. And in this case... Um, the scientists were a team out of Korea that had relevant training and, and good pedigree, and there was nothing about their backgrounds that would cause alarm. Uh, and so, um, and they openly expressed a willingness to support anybody trying to reproduce their results. And so from that lens, so far, so good. Um, where this situation began to devolve, uh, in our view, was uh, when we pondered the second question, which is where was it published? And this is where non-scientists... Um, could easily learn this tactic to understand wh uh, where this is published because it, it matters a lot. Um, and in this case, this is where things got a little dicey because this, this claim, this giant claim of not only a room temperature superconductor, but one that worked at temperatures above the boiling point of water was such a giant leap that it, it belied belief. 
And um, it wasn't actually published. It was self-published as a preprint, two preprints, actually, one with three authors and one with six, which was already a bit of a red flag. Um, internal sort of um, debates about who gets credit uh, for this miraculous invention. And um, it did not get submitted to a reputable journal, and it had therefore not survived the gauntlet of peer review and editorial processes that exist at these journals. Now, these are highly imperfect, but there's a vast chasm between a preprint and a peer-reviewed journal where the credibility of the editorial staff and the reviewers at that journal is, is commingled with the authors because they've agreed to publish it. And um, in an ideal world, for claims as spectacular as this, it would have been helpful if the media waited until a respectable journal lent that credibility of its editorial process to the work, but that's not the world that we live in. Um, and then where are we in the scientific process is the third question. And as we said in the piece, um, results such as these are not considered validated until the independent lab has reproduced the results. And nobody had done that at the time that we had written this piece. And how could they? It was published as a preprint um, with, with pretty minimal environmental procedures. Um, and in fact, one of the most important aspects of the editorial process in the scientific world is that journals, respectable journals, ensure that the authors provide a significant amount of experimental detail so that experts in the field, not lay people, but experts in the field are capable of reproducing these results. Um, what is the scientific context is, is the fourth question. And here, the, we have an ugly, ugly history of people claiming to have achieved room temperature superconducting breakthroughs and none of it panning out. Uh, retractions, fraud, misunderstanding of the data, that's the kind of context that you can't ignore. And as we pointed out in the piece, a very high-profile professor uh, at the University of uh, Rochester is in the middle of basically such a scandal where you know, uh, abundant claims of, of amazing breakthroughs are being retracted in, in a sea of scandal. Uh, but then the last question is, what should we expect next? And I think this is the most powerful one for a, a team of executives, which is, in this case, because the chemistry is so simple, um, it wouldn't take long for what we know to be an army of robotics-driven, statistics-driven, high-throughput, heterogeneous synthesis capabilities at the multi-decabillion-dollar chemical companies to obliterate the experimental space in this area. The, the materials were so simple. The conditions were so straightforward. As we said in the piece, this gave us even further pause because uh, giant leaps of science usually don't arise from such kitchen chemistry, as we called it. But if it were real, even once, it would take a matter of days or weeks for the industrial giants to peruse this. And so um, our, our closing comments, based on the totality of those five questions, was we're deeply, deeply skeptical. And uh, we would need to see a lot more. We hope it's true. Turns out it isn't. Uh, I think the consensus is that this was yet another in the crowded bin of false starts uh, as it pertains to room temperature superconductors. But um, the overarching point of this piece was to introduce the framework and to apply it. It wasn't really about room temperature superconductors, but that was the sort of the lens through which we would have typed up a five paragraph summary to our CEO who read about it in the Financial Times. Maybe we can pause here. I'm very curious to understand the how important is what would this breakthrough have been? Like, what is the relevance of superconductivity uh, at room temperature? I've read a little bit about quantum computing and all that implicates on cryptographic uh, industries and all that, but maybe you can give us a little bit of uh, an insight there. I appreciate the question. We had a piece 
um, outlined but not yet written, which we ultimately decided not to publish, called What If, where we were going to walk through just what it meant. But as it became clear that um, this was almost certainly a misinterpretation of data, which, by the way, would have been caught in the peer review process, which is why the peer review process for all of its warts is still critically important. Um, this would have been, and if it were ever to be achieved, it would, in all seriousness and with no hyperbole, it would have been an invention on par with fission or perhaps the discovery of, of semiconductors. It, it is that real. And that's why so many people want to believe, so many people trick themselves into believing data that's not quite real or the field uh, attracts a disproportionate amount of fraud. Um, it is truly the word um, uh, game changer or, or you know, um, holy grail, uh, th that phrase gets abused. This would truly be a, a holy grail. And even, again, it, in the piece, what if we would have mentioned, because of what we know to be the power of the, of the chemical companies, um, if it can be shown that it at least happened once, even if it was a mistake in how they synthesized it or it was a fluke or whatever, the proof of existence would have been a humanity-changing event. Many, many scientists believe that this is not even theoretically possible. Um, and so it is... It, it was actually with great sadness that we wrote that piece because deep down, as much as you wanted to believe, and there was a bunch of hyperbole on Twitter and, you know, this, this, these things, you know, had their own social media life, um, the five stages. Um, it, it, it was sad to see because, as we said in the piece, you know, for the sake of the reputations of the people involved, but also just for the sake of science itself, which has been battered recently in the post-COVID era, um, it's a shame that this ultimately will fizzle into uh, yet another false start. It's really interesting. The, the idea of the existence proof is, is such a, um, uh, such a critical element, I suppose. It do, you know, could it actually be done and, yeah. and actually having some sort of semblance of belief then triggers, you know, a potential avalanche of, of oh. investment and, oh. and, 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 um, and belief. Yeah. I mean, Good. remember when, when, um, the first four minute mile was achieved and then suddenly right. everybody did it. Uh, this is the, the, this great. Is the analogy. Yeah. Great and, example. And I can assure you that um, the theory would have very quickly caught up to the experiment and the experiment would have been, again, it would have been obliterated. I, I am aware and participated in the development of technologies where you could run 8,000 experiments a day in a very narrow field where you're making the tiniest of changes to experimental patterns, temperature ramps, oxygen content, concentrations of various you know, um, reactions, and all powered by statistical design so that you can get maximum information for the minimum amount of experiments, even though the amount of experiments is effectively limitless. This would have been obliterated. The entire experimental map would have been filled in with such a speed. And by the way, every single country in the world and their um, supported scientists would have completely ignored uh, intellectual property rights. This would have been a total game theory creep for all. <laughs> um, the Chinese would have done it, and that would have forced everyone else to yeah. do it. Um, it would have been a frenzy, the likes of which we have rarely seen. And and that's why when we again as we concluded the piece um, with a good turn of phrase, and I just pulled it up. Um, to us, the leap is too far, the method's too simple, and the process too premature to get excited. Um, and, and unfortunately, that uh, initial response, which we put out very early on when it was kind of risky to take that stand, uh, has proven to be, um, to be pressing. So while you chose not to publish the what-if piece, maybe you can humor us for a moment. Just give us the implications of what, room temperature super, superconductivity would imply for, for, for the myriad industries that it would affect and, and, and 
what does it mean exactly from a technical perspective? So that's a bit of a challenge because it is a sort of a technical singularity and it's impossible to see what's on the other side of it because it would enable so many secondary and tertiary uh, potential technical advances that people have assumed were impossible. Um, at, at the superficial clickbaity hype is around the possibility of rewiring our grid and having no losses as we transmit electricity from long distances, which then, of course, opens up possibilities for you know um, uh, putting nuclear reactors in far safer areas or pick your favorite technology. But in our view, that wouldn't have been the primary benefit because the, you're still confronting the Herculean efforts it requires to do anything at scale in the country. Um, but what would have been enabled were things like quantum computing and all manner of high-tech electronics advances that would have led to secondary and tissue inventions that are impossible to project. If you just take quantum computing, for example, I was just on a, a Bitcoin-oriented podcast, and I, I closed it by saying you should be thrilled that the room temperature superconductor technology fizzled out because... Um, it, it would probably enable a step change in quantum computing and get us back on track with Moore's law. And that would have meant that it's the, the, the likelihood of hacking the, the Bitcoin network would have suddenly become possible. <laughs> and so uh, who knows what happens when you develop, you know, the next, you know, a quadrupling or, or 10xing of computing power in short order um, and what other sort of uh, advances come from that. It would have been, again, just impossible to model. But truly, like, there is no exaggerating the tech, technical impact, which is why, again, I, and as we wrote that piece, and we have hundreds of contacts in industry, and none of whom can speak publicly. We got our inbox was filled with, with, um, with attaboys and thank yous, and and teams who are already trying to reproduce it and were frustrated. And you know, we we had a pretty good sense already by the time we wrote it where this was going, uh, yeah. based on our contacts in industry. It kind of reminds me not just me, the hacking of, not just the hacking of the the Bitcoin network but the, the the sheer solving of the cryptographic yes puzzle that needs exactly. to be solved for effort for every hash i think they would probably have collapsed uh the price of bitcoin eventually well in all encryption generally i mean quantum computing Upending is, banking yeah, and all, all other sorts of industries stuff, right and if you know a, a a nefarious state actor were to jump on this and beat us to the punch you know it does all it, it would have it, like all technical breakthroughs, like fission, for example, there's the prospect of limitless carbon-free power, and there's the prospect of thermonuclear war and, and a civilization-ending extinction event. And so um, the, the breakthrough of a room-temperature superconductor would have brought both sides of that coin. Um, and, and given the relative polarity that we're experiencing in the geopolitical world, that might not have been the best time for it. See, the, the, the corollary to, the, to all this is that <laughs> enormous amounts of heat are generated with conductors, right? And computers can burn and CPUs can burn out if they're, if they're overused. It reminds me of the, uh, in a sort of more like microcosm way, uh, you know, of the Le Mans race. Yeah. And, you know, where, where engines blow out and tires burn and brakes, you know, are, are like glowing red in the race, you know, because they're being run so hard and the constraints but if you could if you could actually run a race without burning your engine without without you know eating up your tires and and burning your brakes off too um there wouldn't be a 24-hour race you know it would be it would be a week-long race <laughs> right yeah it's a great analogy and i would yeah. say you know, given the hype around ai that we're seeing yeah. right now like um, uh, the room temperature superconducting technology would have made uh, ray kurzweil's book the singularity is near seem um uh, seem pessimistic 
It would have been like a, well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> so Richard, you were wanting to go a slightly different direction before we got yeah. on the uh, superconductor. So what were, what were you thinking there in the, uh, I think well, it was in the industrial space, but I'm trying to I, I really find, enjoyed... you, find your strength. Oh, Richard, you go ahead. I was just, I was going to bring up the Ontario, you know, power generation story because I thought let's that go, was really, let's go there. Was, yeah. I, I think it's, it, I think it would be great for Doomy to set the table on the, just on the overall construct of the trade-off between the choices that we're making vis-a-vis -vis en energy and how several, you know, whether you want to touch on the Jevons paradox and those types of things yeah. and how humanity sort of adapts to the um, ever-changing energy landscape. And then let's delve into the individual, uh, success stories and challenges across the geopolitical landscape. Does that make sense for everybody? Yeah, I think that yeah, does. And I think what you just touched on the fact the the, the trade-off comment, right? Uh, one, one of Doombrig's, uh, catchphrases or, or, or themes is just, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs, which really does, uh, uh, convey the nuance of his and his team's thinking. And real world problems, as opposed to a lot of the clickbait and headline stuff that tends to capture, uh, the attention these days. So yeah, maybe we start off there. Sure. Um, you know, we've popularized the phrase energy is life. Um, and what we mean by that is, you know, um, disorder is spontaneous, like back to physics 101, that the universe is not a friendly place. And, um, in the long arc of history, um, disorder is spontaneous and your standard of living is literally measured by how much order you get to impose on your local environment. And we were joking a bit about backgrounds before we started recording. And one thing that we'd like to say is right angles aren't, um, uh, don't spontaneously exist in nature. You know, you have to impose that order on your local environment. If you leave your home unattended, it will, uh, you know, slowly disintegrate over time um, as, as the chaotic forces of, of, of nature um, express themselves. And, and literally your standard of living, therefore, is defined by how much energy you get to harness. And all humans everywhere want a higher standard of living. And most humans on the planet have a standard of living that everybody listening to this call would be appalled by. And all of them want a higher standard of living. They want to climb Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And at the highest level, the total amount of, quote, standard of living that we can spread across all humans on the planet is capped by how much energy we harness and then how efficiently we both extract work from that energy and then distribute the benefits uh, of the work we extract from that energy across society. And so when we say there are no solutions, um, uh, only trade-offs, um, no matter how you squeeze the balloon, you know, the, the, the bulge pops up somewhere. And, and from those fundamental axiomatic set of, of thoughts derive a practical assessment of various energy proposals that we have before us. And so, um, for example, it is just undeniable that higher energy, energy density sources uh, tend to lead to economic prosperity and in the absence of government interference are spontaneously adopted. It's also just clear from the evidentiary record that, um, you know, uh, every molecule of fossil fuels produced will be burned by somebody somewhere. Uh, and uh, local restrictions on who gets to do so merely shift the privilege. And so if we uh, outlawed gasoline in the U.S. today, 
every drop of it refined in the world would be burned somewhere else, especially in the developing world, which is energy poor. Um, and by the way, the amount of oil we refine would be unchanged because even though we've banned gasoline, we need diesel to move everything around. And uh, these are co-products and co-product economics, which is, again, something that, you know, intuitively, if you work in industry, are a completely different animal than monoproducts and, and producing a thing for a purpose. And, and when you have multiple supply-demand curves interacting, you get very weird results. So if, if gasoline went negative, um, people would still refine oil and the price of diesel and jet fuel and asphalt and, and petrochemicals would just go up to compensate so that the refiners could continue to earn their cost of capital. Um, and so these are the sort of the fundamental framework analyses that, that derive all of our pieces. And then the Ontario piece you talked about, which we can talk about in detail, um, piece called Cheat Codes, where we talked about how Ontario is basically a decade ahead of the U.S. in its energy journey. And why don't we just skip the in-between? Um, mm -hmm. And we've written a variety of other pieces, the Streisand effect, where it, it's completely puzzling to Western Europeans why it would be that we set a record for coal consumption in 2022 and look set to set another record in 2023. Well, once you understand that every molecule of fossil fuels produced will be consumed by somebody somewhere, then the only thing that's going to toggle fossil fuel consumption is fossil fuel production. And Europe doesn't control any fossil fuel production of consequence. And so um, the coal deposits are largely being exploited in the global south, and the global south is energy poor. And so, of course, they're going to go to coal, uh, much as the Germans did, uh, you know, once they were confronted with their energy crisis. And so once you have this framework, again, much like assessing scientific headlines, we're framework thinkers. What is the framework? What is the headline of the day? How does that headline of the day fit into our framework? What are the deviations for what we know to be true? And therefore, what can we write about that and points to the things that must be unsustainable? And it is no surprise to us um, that we're heading down the same path of Ontario and we should expect the same set of results. And, and the fact that the global south is greedily consuming every, every molecule of fossil fuels if you get its hands on uh, is also quite consistent with our framework. So that concept that you just outlined, right, that you're alluding to the Jevons paradox, which is, I guess, one of the many mental models that you guys use to make sense of what's going on. Does that also apply to carbon capture? Because one of the things that I hear from environmentalists is that there's some hesitance uh, regarding the evolution of carbon capture technology would then just push people to burn more fossil fuels. And be, uh, this particular group, a uh, group of people want us to stop consuming fossil fuels outright, which seems as you've pointed out in some of your pieces, quite ludicrous given our, our, our need for, for, for energy. So would that uh, rationale also apply given uh, uh, you know, this trade-off between consumption and, and production? So there are two uh, intellectual positions of the progressive environmental left that um, betray their real intentions. Uh, one of them is their opposition to nuclear power, and the other is their opposition to carbon capture and sequestration. Ostensibly, the entire trillions of dollars we've been torching is all about limiting our carbon emissions. Nuclear power is a very safe, very affordable source of carbon-free power for decades. They have concocted all manner of reasons to be opposed to it. And if you burn fossil fuels but capture the carbon that results, then that's kind of ideal. Um, and yet they also oppose um, CCS projects. And their reason for doing so is very disingenuous, uh, but it actually proves, in our view, 
that this is actually not about carbon emissions. It's about Malthusian instincts and too many humans and resource drains in other areas and their desire to, um, you know, they view humanity as a cancer. And I know that sounds weird, but if you dive into the history of the modern environmental movement and some of the key thought leaders behind it, they want less people on the planet. And the reason why they opposed nuclear power in the 60s and 70s was precisely because it enables abundant, cheap, carbon-free power for the masses. They don't want the masses to thrive. Um, they can't run on that. They can't, um, you know, that is not a, a popular political platform in a democratic system where the masses get to vote. But there is no intellectual foundation from which you could support being opposed to nuclear power and carbon capture, except for Malthusian instincts. And so um, they should just be honest about it and run on it. They would lose, of course, which is why they won't. Um, and we consider ourselves, you know, pro-human. Um, we are um, long human ingenuity and our ability to react to a changing climate. Um, and we would like for the maximum number of people to have the best chance of the highest standard of living. And, and we proudly take that position in debates uh, and in our writing. And, and I think, you know, who are we to say that the 5 billion people in the global South um, shouldn't aspire to have the same amazing standard of living that we've been thrilled to carve out for ourselves. Um, I could think of a, I, I couldn't think of a more arrogant position um, to have. And, and so um, the, the, in particular with carbon capture, the whole point of abating fossil fuel use is to limit our carbon emissions. Well, here's a way to get the most of the energy benefits. There's an, a, there's a penalty to pay on the back end for capturing and sequestering this stuff. Um, Here's a way to get most of the benefits of fossil fuels with none of the alleged uh, risks, and yet they're still opposed to that. And so these are two exceptions that really prove the rule. The rule is they want less energy. The consequences, you know, if energy is life, the lack of energy is death. And so if you are opposed to nuclear power and you're opposed to carbon capture and you're opposed to fossil fuels and you're pro-intermittent weather-dependent renewables, you are pro-death. You want less humans on the planet. And you should just say it, have the courage to say, we have too many people. And we'd like a lot less of you, yeah. not, you know, and, and to which we routinely say, you know, you first. Yeah. And, and, and the, and the example that's been set by uh, Europe over this last winter by scrambling and burning everything that was dirty, um, it, the example it sets for the, the broad South, as you call it, is a, uh, sort of a, a two standard system. In a winter that they got extremely lucky, we should say, because yeah. it was really, really warm, unseasonably warm uh, for, for, for most of it. Are you excited at all about the recent evolutions in carbon capture technology? Is that a path that you think is going to help us uh, with anth anthropogenic uh, global warming? So I, I, there are two questions. Am I excited in, in anthropogenic global warming? Let's, let's tackle the first. Um, I, I, I have a distinct memory of attending all the way back, I think it was in 2007, the Carbon Capture and Sequestration Conference in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I left that conference and wrote a note to my superiors um, with the following summary. Um, enhanced oil recovery is the enabling technology that allows you to generate revenue from capturing carbon. Um, the thing that is constraining uh, enhanced oil recovery using CO2 is a network of pipelines from the point source producers, i.e. electricity producers, to the remote fields where the drilling is occurring. And um, once that happens, um, this technology is ready, mature, requires no invention, and can totally work. And um, that prediction has proven out. Exxon just made a major acquisition in the space, basically to buy CO2 pipelines 
um, um, and there is one company that we profiled. We're not investors, and we don't do you know single stock names. But uh, it was the Rice family's um, special purpose acquisition vehicle at the time called Roni, um, now called Net Power, where they uh, acquired and took public, perhaps prematurely in our view, but still an exciting opportunity. A, a company that uses um, oxygen separation technology at the front end of a natural gas power plant, so that they could burn natural gas, produce power, and produce a relatively pure stream of CO2 on the back end that circumvents the need for separation technologies and allows them to situate these plants near oil producing fields so they could take that CO2 and inject it underground and get more oil as a consequence. And a, a giant glaring opportunity space for technologies like that would be in Saudi Arabia where um, you know, they have uh, aging fields and EOR is not widely used and they have an enormous amount of natural gas and you they burn oil to produce electricity today, so a pretty simple, you know, CO2 win would be to replace oil-burning electricity factories with natural gas, but in this case with the oxygen separation units put in front of the process so that you, you take pure natural gas and pure air and you produce CO2 and water, which is a very easy separation, and then that CO2 becomes, you know, uh, uh, the genesis for an enhanced oil recovery campaign that allows Saudi Arabia to maintain its, you know, production capacity. So... Uh, we are, you know, um, not for global warming slash, um, you know, climate change initiatives. We would be independently excited about um, carbon capture and sequestration because a critical mass of infrastructure has been built. And this is only going to be accelerated because of substantial support in the Inflation Reduction Act for such projects, much to the chagrin of the Malthusian environmentalists that we referred to earlier. Um, the company is called Net Power. I think that the ticker is NW, uh, NPWR. It's the Rice family uh, of uh, natural gas fame. They generally have a good track record of making money for people. Not an not advice. We have no position. It might be overvalued, um, but uh, have a look. And then the second point on anthropogenic global warming, do, if you want to go there, uh, uh, do you have any... I, I, it's... I, it's hard to imagine a world where we don't just roll the dice and run the experiment because the vast majority of people throwing those die don't live in the Western world <laughs> and consume vastly less energy than we do. Um, you know, we, we've written about this in several ways. We wrote a piece called The Streisand Effect um, and a couple others. I've got milk where we talked about the insanity of Ireland calling its cattle in the name of climate change when, um, you know, a burp in India um, circumvents the entirety of, of, of the Irish uh, carbon emissions on an annual basis. But, you know, if if certain subset of the world would like to impale themselves on the altar of, of the Church of Carbon, they're free to do that. Um, in our view, the world is going to run the experiment and the funds that we are currently deploying to try to prevent that experiment from occurring would be better spent on reacting to the consequences as they arise. But we don't control such funds. And uh, as a political reality, as an investor, you have to assume axiomatically that hundreds of billions of dollars are going to be torched in the name of climate change. And you just have to have that as an input into your models, regardless of whether you believe that is a prudent use of limited uh, taxpayer money. Fair enough. I wonder if we can shift gears a little bit. Uh, you mentioned something in a recent piece or, or one of the recent podcasts that I heard that you did uh, citing currencies as a manifestation of our energy policies. Maybe you can explain that a little bit and then put us in context, I guess, for, for some of the major currencies globally and the respective energy policies of those countries. 
in our view, the very first thing a macroeconomic analyst must do is determine whether the world is in the period of energy abundance or energy scarcity. And in a period of energy abundance, energy is just another commodity. Currencies trade and float against each other based on relative manufacturing performance and ability to add value in various supply chains and maybe military might and all of the sort of standard depth of ports and river systems and everything else that makes a country strong or weak. But in a world where energy is scarce, then energy quickly becomes the master resource. And we saw this in the uh, energy crisis that started long before Putin overplayed his hand and, and crossed the border in Ukraine. Um, countries that are deeply short primary energy, countries in regions like the EU, the UK, and Japan saw their currencies weaken. And countries that have um, relative abundance of energy, like Russia, saw their currency strengthen. And the collapse of the sanctions regime, or the complete failure of them, was something we predicted early on, much to the chagrin of many, um, many people on Twitter at the time. But uh, it was always going to fail because during a period of energy scarcity, the producers have all the cards. Uh, and as anybody who has worked in industry knows, you make all your money during shortages and the price elasticity of demand for energy is enormous. And when there's a shortage of it, um, attacking somebody's volume um, means they'll just make it up in price. And, and when you have a chronic shortage of a highly inelastic commodity, a competitor's plant exploding means you're going to make an enormous amount of money. Um, because you might lose 2-3% of the volume, but the, the price is going to double or triple uh, on that volume loss. And so, um, again, that basic understanding of energy as life means, you know, our currencies are just overlaying our energy transactions in a way to try to make them more efficient. And that only becomes apparent when you don't have enough energy. And then the um, ebbs and flows of, of various currencies become far less relevant. Now, I would say, um, because of the mild winter of 2022, 2023, we went from a period of energy shortage to energy abundance. The price of coal collapsed, the price of natural gas collapsed, the price of oil fell. Um, three distinct things, which we can talk about. Um, and you saw the euro, the pound, the yen, and the ruble change course. And that's no surprise to us. Russia does not add value um, over and above its energy commodities in any meaningful way. So when there's a surplus of energy, Russia's currency suffers. Um, uh, if you asked me, during a time of energy shortage, I would say relative energy positioning might explain 80% of the variance of currency moves. And during times of relative energy abundance, it explains precious little of it. Um, and that's sort of the view that we have. Um, others disagree. But that, that's how we view currencies. Because ultimately, the point of a currency is to allow you to store, transport, and spend work um, and energy is the ultimate precursor to work. Yeah, that's that the uh, that's the difference in the in the monetary regime versus the actual industrial regime of the production of these things and the uh, and I, this is one of the things that always kind of is rattled around in my mind is with with this discussion of MMT and you know those types of of programs are seems to me an energy abundance type of program and when you get into energy scarcity it would be extremely hard to have those types of um, programs in place. Yeah, and also um, two things for the U.S. They are the reserve currency, which gives us, you know, gives it a bit of privilege and, and the right to screw things up uh, a little bit more widely than, say, an emerging economy. But also 
for all of its warts and regulatory issues. The U.S. is an energy superpower par excellence. Um, and, and there's just no questioning that um, even with one hand tied behind our back, the U.S. Uh, in that spectrum of, of countries has an enormous resource base. And because of this artifact of our regulatory system where you can get, a, you know, you can get permits in certain states and the feds leave uh, a lot of sort of the exploration and property rights up to state by state, you can have a Texas in the same country where you have a California and you can have a Louisiana in the same country where you have a Massachusetts. And, and so you're not sort of um, restricted at the national level in the way that, say, Germany would be uh, or the UK. And, and so um, luckily, because of that, we have we have look, we are the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. Um, we produce as much oil or more oil, frankly, than Saudi Arabia. Um, we have abundant minerals and resources. We have friendly neighbors to the north and south, Canada, with their can-do reactor technology. We have 60 reactors of our own. Um, we have an enormous amount of coal. We have chemical expertise and commodity expertise and educated labor force and outstanding universities and deep ports and all of the things that, that you would need. We're separated from our enemies by oceans. And, um, you know, no matter how hard we try to screw it up, um, we are an energy superpower. And so when you combine the fact that we are still currently the reserve currency and an energy superpower, we are allowed to squander the advantages that, that those two things bring to us for a far, far longer period of time than, say, uh, what's happening in Argentina today, uh, just to give you a different example. I wonder if we jump into Ontario then as, as the yeah. potential blueprint for, um, for America, if you will. Yeah. So uh, we wrote a piece called Cheat Codes where we talked about how um, you know, Ontario has literally done everything we're doing just 10 years sooner. And, and we opened that piece with the 2009 passage of what they called the Green Energy Act. And uh, we had a picture in the piece of a couple of children pointing at a wind turbine, you know, a, a Green Energy Act for our children yeah. was, was the, the propaganda. And um, as we said in the caption, we enjoy having the occasional joke in our captions, um, who could be against kids? Right. It's uh, the, the, old, the old expression in, in the public relations world was um, hazard equals risk times outrage. And there's nothing more outrageous than puppies and kids. Um, and so just ask Michael Vick. But I digress. <laughs> so in, in 2009, um, Ontario passed this boondoggle. And as you can imagine, it dissolved into a, uh, an orgy of grift and government waste. And the, the province is still paying for uh, for this, the, the, the uh, against the advice of their own experts, they signed all of these really strict, you know, um, uh, feed-in tariff agreements, which are effectively take-or-pay contracts, and um, uh, this had the effect of enriching all manner of insiders and and politically connected individuals at the expense of the taxpayers. And and a reasonable estimate that we got from our friends at the Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Uh, is that Ontario taxpayers will ultimately be on the hook for some 60 billion Canadian right. over the life of these FITs, which is roughly the equivalent of the U.S. wasting a trillion, which uh, you know is probably what we'll end up wasting with the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And in 2018, the citizens of Ontario revolted. They tossed the ruling Liberal Party out in a historic election. Um, they were swept out of power. Um, to such a degree that they didn't even qualify for official party status. And um, the Progressive Conservative Party, which to our American listeners probably sounds like an oxymoron, um, were swept into power. Doug Ford, um, former 
council member of, of the uh, of the Toronto City Council, um, came back and and first order of business was to um, revoke the Green Energy Act to the extent that he could. These contracts couldn't be canceled; they were so uh, ironclad. But um, the, the law was revoked, and a reconciliation with physics uh, occurred. And now the country, the province, I'm sorry, uh, which already has one of the cleanest grids in the developed world, is um, is reengaging with nuclear at, at a historic clip. It's funny, you know, we, we, we take all that for granted. Yeah. Yeah. And we could do it here. So why do we need to waste the trillion? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Skip the middle part. Yeah. And, and it's testimony to a lot of things, but you know, the individual citizens can have an impact. We profiled our friend, Dr. Chris Kiefer, the head of Canadians for nuclear energy and, um, he, he's a medical doctor who went down the journey in the rabbit hole of all the various technologies. And, and his podcast is called Decouple, which, uh, which is meant to explore technologies that can decouple human flourishing from our impact on the planet. And if you have a serious science-based approach to that problem, you end up on nuclear power for obvious reasons. It is extraordinarily energy dense. We have an enormous amount of fuel. The civilian nuclear power industry has an unparalleled safety track record. We we recently wrote another piece um, about the various trade offs and the dangers and 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 why we treat nuclear power so differently um, than the rest of the industry. That piece was called a Frame of Reference, and the uh, the, the social preview was um, contextualizing the wholly unscientific fear of nuclear power. We started that piece with a story of a hydroelectric dam collapse in China that killed a quarter million people. Imagine, you know, not a single person. Well, okay, one person died as a result of Fukushima four years after the event from a cancer associated with their exposure to radiation. That's a tragedy. 250,000 people died when a hydroelectric dam collapsed. We haven't gone about deconstructing all the dams currently in existence because of the dangers of hydroelectric power. Like, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And this is nowhere made more apparent than people's abject fear of nuclear waste. You cannot find a single human being on the planet who has ever been injured by nuclear waste. Period. Not one. That's on one side of the scale. On the other side of the scale is the effectively limitless, reliable, 90% capacity factor baseload power that the industry cranks out year after year after year. This is what we're measuring. Frame of reference. You know what I want to know? I want to know who the people, who they are, the people in the middle. You know, you... You say, I mean, it's very, I know you're, you know, you're boiling it down to the uh, bottom line, which is that, you know, let's just skip the middle part. But the problem is that the people in power are, you know, sort of currying favor with the people in the middle. So who are they? Who are the people in the middle that, 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 you know, benefit from the, uh, the grift and the corruption that you talk about? Um, Look, the, the fossil fuel industry is not innocent in this regard. It collaborated with the environmentalists in the 70s and 80s to do whatever it could to make nuclear power look bad. Um, there's, there's all manner of bad actors in all sectors. We're not here to defend the fossil fuel industry and all of its right. ports. Um, classic example, as we read in the, in the papers the other day, about um, an LNG export terminal that has refused to certify that it is in commercial operation so it doesn't have to meet its fixed contract obligations that it used to finance the production of the facility and instead can sell 120 cargos and counting into the spot market, uh, those cargos that were um, objectively 
should have gone uh, at much lower prices to people that contracted with them. It's a dirty business. And uh, whenever there's um, the prospect of, of free money, uh, there'll be no shortage of hucksters looking to grab you know, their fair share uh, right, or absolutely. unfair share uh, in this case. And so it really does boil down to morals and ethics and standards and, and behaviors and institutions and trusts in them. And the decaying of our institutions, I think, is a, is a far uh, greater issue than any particular energy policy that might emanate from Washington, D.C. Given how much of the zeitgeist is captured by what you would probably describe as an irrational fear of nuclear energy and probably uh, Christopher Nolan's new Oppenheimer movie sets us back several more years because of that. But wh what is the path that you see, uh, given the political gridlock and, and, and the polarization in the U.S. today, for a little bit more cogent, rational, logic energy policy in the U.S. and a path towards more nuclear uh, energy in general? It's truly a, a function of how much pain we wish to subject ourselves to before the political process self-corrects. And um, Canada is having, Ontario in particular, is having its renaissance with nuclear power. Um, the U.S. actually is doing a fair bit, um, and, and we're quite pleased by the progress that we've seen, particularly on uh, SMR technology, which we can talk about how that might change the game from the industrial perspective, which few people are talking about. Um, but United Arab Emirates just turned on its third of four uh, nuclear reactors and has two more coming. Uh, Japan is, even Japan is restarting um, its reactors. Um, most of Europe, except for Germany, has realized that there is no other answer. You know, when you exhaust all the other possibilities, you end up at the only answer. And then the true nature of the trade-offs um, become apparent. And these, th this is really just a political problem, and politics can change overnight with enough pain. We'd like to skip the pain, um, and we will advocate for skipping the pain. But unfortunately, I think... Um, some of that pain just needs to be realized. And, and again, you sort of the, the internal conflict of, of Western Europe, for example, escaping the winter last year, this is something that we are happy to see. We're disappointed that political leaders in the region have confused good fortune with sound strategy, um, which unfortunately was pretty predictable. But, um, you know, a, a finite amount of pain um, is needed to be absorbed before people reconcile with physics, like Ontario did. Ontario suffered a lot of pain as a consequence of the disastrous policies that flowed from the Green Energy Act. Luckily, in Ontario, it was a peaceful political process that led to a change uh, of, of uh, regimes. And um, the Ford regime, I, don't, I have no idea, really, about any other Doug Ford policies. I, I couldn't tell you a single thing that he is for or against. I just know from the most important issue, he's, he's, he's done a good job. Um, in the same way, RFK, you know, uh, Jr. is so dead wrong on nuclear power that it's disqualifying to us, no matter what you think of the rest of his views. Um, we're kind of single-issue voters over here in the chicken coop. But, um, but yeah, I, I do think um, because physics dict dictates that nuclear energy is the superior form, it will eventually be adopted by most people, whether or not climate change is the driver, collapse in standard livings is the driver, peak oil is the driver, um, pick your favorite, all roads lead to Rome. Crisis necessity change. <laughs> mm -hmm. Can't we do a little bit of introspection and planning and then execution? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, people are doing it. That's what the United True. Arab Emirates has done. True. Um, there's a fantastic episode of Decouple um, on that topic that I would encourage everybody to listen to. 
it, it can be done. And look, it involves a holistic approach. You know, the, here's a classic example. The entirety of the environmental movement, Sierra Club, Greenpeace, violently oppose the nuclear power. They do everything in their power to slow, obstruct, revoke permits, make it more expensive, um, sue people into oblivion. And then they turn around and say, we shouldn't do nuclear because it takes too long and it's too expensive. Well, Canada built a gigawatt of nuclear reactor power every year for 20 years in the 70s. Why, why can't we do that today? You're telling me that 50 years on, we don't have the technical prowess of, of Canada with its population of 15 million people back then? Of course we do. These are political choices. The cost of nuclear is a political artifact. The speed of nuclear is a political artifact. There are no technical constraints to substantially decarbonizing our energy grid. There are only political constraints. And those are real. Those need to be confronted. In our own small way, we've tried to participate in the, in the narrative shifting and in the education uh, in that way. And while we have a small audience, we think we have a pretty influential one. Um, and so um, we're doing our part. More and more, it's hard to separate macroeconomics from politics. You've recently talked about the necessity in the coming years for a reimagining of our economic systems, I guess, given demographics in some way or, or, or another. And I, I know that you guys over at the chicken coop do lean libertarian to some degree. What role do you think governments are going to have to play or, or, or the size of that role and the nature of that role? Especially when you think about how much debt we currently have in the system and, and the, the, the potential for some debt jubilee, whether it's a soft one through inflation or a harder one, depending on the country. How, does it, how, how, is it, how are the next couple of decades going to look like in your mind? I think a lot of it depends on, obviously, the next few years and how conflicts resolve between the nuclear superpowers, both in Western Europe and uh, or Eastern Europe and, and in the Taiwan Strait. Like Those are giant problems that we need to work through. Um, per your um, you know, uh, commenting that we are mostly libertarian, there's a, a critical role for government. Um, we, we believe that certain environmental externalities are poorly priced by the market, and there's a reasonable role for government intervention that unfettered capitalism is ultimately, in the long run, pretty destructive. Um, and so there is a, a, a case for societal stabilization in the form of redistribution of wealth and minimizing inequality, but most importantly, insistency of contract law, you know, um, and, and the enforcement thereof. And the difference between Canada and the tar sands and Venezuela and its heavy oil deposits is contract law and, and, sol and sovereign risk. And, and so, um, so long as you have consistency and institutions that are strong to enforce that consistency, um, then you have the potential for the best aspects of capitalism um, while minimizing uh, the worst of its tendencies. And I think it is um, insincere for people to deny the worst aspects of, of capitalism. They exist. They're real. Um, but also I think it is also inappropriate to deny the power of the market and, and the power of, uh, of the financial signals and price signals to optimally organize society in a way that benefits the vast majority of humans uh, as possible. And so we are, um, you know, I, I would say like most people, this party doesn't exist. We are socially pretty liberal, fiscally pretty conservative. 
um, would prefer the government do less and uh, be more effective with what it does. Um, that that is a bit of a pipe dream, uh, at least in the U.S. today. Uh, but that's where we would stand politically. I, I want to uh, I want to talk about the uh, piece that you wrote, uh, titled "Tour de Farce," where your your preheader was great. It was um, you know if everything is climate change, then nothing is climate change. Yeah, yeah. John Kerry, our yeah. favorite, uh, <laughs> our favorite favorite punching bag. Um, the, the, this is a one-sentence summary of, of Tour de Force. Uh, Tour de Farce is that if um, record drought is proof of climate change, yeah. then uh, historic relief of said drought can't also be climate change. Uh, and yet, um, with a straight face, um, we have the modern sort of traditional media outlets making just such claims as though they had forgotten what they had written back in November um, before the deluge uh, of rain fell upon California and much of Western, um, uh, Western, the Western United States and relieved this historic drought. So you, it wasn't that long ago that every dry day out in the West was proof positive of climate change. And, and so now, of course, they're arguing that um, it's not global warming, it's, it's global climate volatility. Um, and, and so it, that's the ultimate unfalsifiable conjecture Right. And so um, and so if everything is climate change, nothing is. And we wrote a follow up piece to that um, shortly thereafter called Wet Blanket, where we talked about the Colorado River Basin and how the incredible snowpack that we've observed last winter is giving enormous relief to all of the communities downstream that rely on this critical artery to sustain our civilization. And in that piece, of course, we 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 commented on how um, uh, ahead of of this miraculous, you know, uh, relief of the drought, um, to the credit of the Biden administration, they negotiated a breakthrough um, in reducing some of the. So you know, the, the rights of the Colorado River were negotiated a century ago, and with arcane laws, and um, you know, certain well-to-do, well-heeled members of the California uh, have access to an enormous amount of water and, and use that privilege to line their own pockets and. And that comes at the expense of upstream communities who are forced to see the water flow by and can't benefit from it. And, and the Biden administration negotiated a 13 uh, percent drop in demand from the sort of the, the downstream uh, states and, and compensated them to the tune of one point two billion dollars. And as we said in the piece, we, we can't help but note the relative pittance it took to drive this solution. You know, and one point two billion is certainly a lot the four of us on this call, and I would personally bend over to pick up 1.2 billion if we're relying on the sidewalk. But to allocators in Washington, D.C., that's a rounding error in the hundreds of billions of dollars we're spending just on climate change alone. And this begs the question of what exactly are we doing with all that money? And in this instance, the legitimate national climate emergency was partially abated by a natural shift in the weather and a modest amount of money invested in adapting to the new climate reality. And why can't this be our general approach? It's far too logical. This would be the sort of libertarian react, prevent approach um, that we would be all for. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the um, reminds me of the very famous line from Chinatown. From uh, you know, it, it's Chinatown, Jake. 
<laughs> right? You know, it's uh, yeah. what was it Hollis yeah. Mulray was the uh, the yeah. wealthy guy who was misappropriating all of California's water for you know to his pockets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a fascinating story in yeah. of itself, and and really shows uh, some of the challenges. The, 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 but again, um, you know that. We, it's, it's, a, it's a story of energy. We have these giant hydroelectric dams all along the Colorado River and how much water they release downstream and who gets to use what. You know, we grow winter vegetables in California with, in a place that used to be the desert. Yeah. Um, and, and that's fine, I suppose, but like these are trade-offs uh, and these are the choices we've made. Well, you told, you told the great story about the uh, indigenous uh, people that are, you know, that once occupied that, that territory in the Central Valley and, and you know, Lake... Lake Tulare. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, um, it's so funny because that story, as, as, we, as you mentioned, it, in the Peace Wet Blanket, we, we like to open our pieces with stories when appropriate. It's a great way to catch people's attention. And, um, you know, the, the lake that you refer to, Tulare Lake, um, really occupied the cultural and spiritual center of, of this tribe. And um, in the 19th and 20th centuries, a rather direct form of anthropological climate change saw that lake drained um, by dams and diversions upstream. And um, to these people, it was a devastating loss. And uh, over the ensuing decades, um, elders have told stories about the lake's eventual reappearance. And with the tsunami of rain that, uh, and precipitation that California experienced this winter, sure enough, um, the lake has now grown to cover more than 113,000 acres again from basically a dry riverbed, uh, a dry lake bed. And um, one way to look at that story is that a miraculous salvation, as, uh, as the elder said, predicted had occurred. But uh, another way to look at it is the way in which NBC did in an article titled Climate Crisis, Tulare Lake Reforms Causing Flooding. Um, that article um, unironically claims that the, quote, area people have worked for a century to make California's Tulare Basin into a food grower's paradise. So... Um, the loss of this indigenous historic land uh, is is repivoted right. as a you know a food growing paradise that we have now lost because of climate change, um, and and the piece goes on to say this is another example of weather whiplash due to the influence of climate <laughs> change, which can make extremes more intense and more frequent. And and as we said after quoting that, you know, whiplash indeed. <laughs> you know, it's it just it is. That is sort of a quintessential Doomberg piece where we can call out the hypocrisy. Um, and there's a great picture uh, of a member of that tribe standing by the newly replenished lake. And the caption for us is vindication of fate. You know, and, um, and so you know, one, one person's crisis is another person's salvation. And, and, and this is why it's important to see the holistic picture in these circumstances. Cr critically important. I, I mean, I, my head spins constantly at the, I, I find it hard to watch general media at all just because it's, it's all spin and uh, no beef, if you will. Um, we, we couldn't be more thankful um, for, for the media's performance. Uh, to be it is the, this clear. is the environment that you thrive in. Right? This is the ultimate inefficiency in the market that Doomberg gets the privilege of exploiting. And um, reflecting on the financial success of Doomberg, I couldn't be more thrilled. Uh, at the uh, behavior of the Washington Post and CNN and NBC and Fox News and and the rest of them, because um, you know uh, team sport partisanship um, is the name of the day, and we try our best to avoid such things. Yeah, but coming back to the the China U.S. sort of 
conflict, if you will, because you touched on it briefly. Can can we dig in there? Like, how, how real is given given China's position demographically, financially? Where, where's where's that conflict headed? And if I could uh, add before you start there, Dumi, it, it strikes me there's an analogy here regarding some of the recent sanctions that the U.S. has imposed on China regarding the several chips acts. Uh, sure. Mm-hmm. That 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 component of it, almost as if the U.S. is goading China to invade Taiwan to some degree, and it it, it reminded me of this this dynamic that happened in the 1930s between the U.S. and Japan, when the embargo of oil kind sure. of precipitated the the uh, the Pearl Harbor attack. I mean, to some degree, uh, those were were causal events. So I wonder if you might comment on that. Does the analogy make sense to you at all? Uh, great book on that exact topic called The New Dealer's War, which I highly recommend um, people read. Uh, goes exactly into that history. It's funny you should ask this question, and this was not a setup, but the piece we're publishing tomorrow is on this exact topic, uh, and it's called Critical Leverage. And, um, and, and we discuss you know, this most unusual event that happened last month, which is Kyle Bass showed up at the Hudson Institute of all places to give uh, a presentation on why he thinks President Xi is preparing for war uh, over the issue of Taiwan. And, and it, we couldn't help but ask ourselves Ben Hunt's famous question, why are we hearing this now? <laughs> like Bass might very well be right, but why is a CNBC regular with a reputation for media savviness? You know, look, the Hudson Institute is, never saw a war it didn't like. I mean, let's be honest. Um, these, this is the, the beating heart of, of, of uh, uh, neoconservatism and they seem to have uh, an insatiable appetite for foreign entanglements of the kinetic variety. And so why Kyle Bass is getting uh, you know, an hour and change to, to get them excited at the prospect of a war between U.S. and China really set us back. But in the piece, um, after introducing that story, uh, we build upon a previous piece that we wrote about, uh, called Build Your Dreams, where uh, we, we lay forth China's strategy to take advantage of our own lack of sort of central planning to occupy key choke points in every strategic value chain they can. And, and I don't think many of our political leaders, and certainly hope, you know, our readers will hopefully find this instructive when we publish it, um, few people understand just how much power they have amassed over us economically. And um, you know, whether it be sensitive military technology or virtually anything to do with the production and transmission of energy, um, China has executed its economic strategic intentions with a brutal efficiency, um, leaving us and our allies woefully disadvantaged should such a conflict occur, and let's hope it doesn't. And in the piece, we use that framework to walk through um, for solar, which is uh, ostensibly you know, American-made solar power that isn't um, held hostage to China's uh, monopolistic chokehold over the polysilicon supply chain and instead uses cadmium telluride uh, thin film solar technology and makes all of these panels in the U.S. and Biden is pouring billions of dollars into this effort because of the Inflation Reduction Act and and we um, you know once we cut the paid we reveal the truth which is China dominates you know, um, tellurium production they, and um, the, for solar is basically um, single sourced on on cadmium telluride and and because China holds the cards even when you think they don't. Um, we ought to be pretty careful about, you know, um, picking such fights, uh, not not accusing people of proactively choosing uh, to go to war. But um, as the father of of uh, draft eligible children, I would prefer that my Congress 
and then at least have a, a vote uh, on whether or not uh, we would embark on these foreign adventures like we used to. Uh, but of course, in, in this, this, this supply chain, like virtually any other that you would analyze, um, China has decided to occupy certain key pinch points. They have done so with ruthless efficiency, and uh, they hold all the cards. And we should know that before we decide to um, go all in at the poker table. So you say they hold all the cards, but we were talking a moment ago about energy independence and China's lack thereof. Uh, China doesn't have a blue water navy. They are, you know, the Malacca Straits and 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 sort of the the shipping lanes that bring a lot of the oil to China could be, maybe not easily is not the right word, but they could be. Uh, uh, locked strategically by the U.S. and its Navy. Uh, you know, Peter Zihan has a, a tendency for hyperbole, but he has explained, <laughs> he, he, he has walked us through in some of his videos how difficult it would be for China to continue uh, uh, the supply of energy through the Straits there. I wonder if you can sure. square that all, for us. All those things are true. I would say this is an example of mutually assured destruction where one side doesn't assume the other side has such power. And the point of our piece is, uh, yes, of course, we could make China suffer. Um, they run an authoritarian regime where they can impose such suffering with minimal political consequences to the ruling party. We don't operate such a regime, and our society is not accustomed to suffering. It's been a long time since we sacrificed for the Second World War. Um, and, and I would argue that this particular generation who assumes that um, energy comes from a light switch and food comes from a tapping off a cell phone uh, is particularly ill-prepared for the consequences of China's counter-reactions to uh, what we are uh, seemingly uh, close to doing. Uh, and so uh, I don't doubt for a second that we could punish China severely. What is China doing? Stockpiling as much coal as it can, building out nuclear reactors as fast as possible, um, buying oil and, and controlling raw materials through the Belt and Road Initiative uh, at a record pace, and importantly, owning as many pinch point military and energy supply chains as possible so that they have their own cards to play. So our, our thesis isn't that China is superior to us. China is in a position of mutually assured destruction. And you know, I'm old enough to remember when that was considered relatively positive for global peace because neither side wanted to go to war. Um, and again, I'm old enough to remember when being uh, anti-war pro-peace was considered a leftist progressive position. Now it's sort of some weird alt-right Putin puppet uh, label that people put on you when you ponder whether or not it might be wise for us to be getting into kinetic conflicts with global super uh, superpowers. So why has the game theory logic there shifted so much? Is it political polarization in the US? I, Is it the, the, the perceived strength by, by one man's rule in China? I think on the US side, it is a lack of knowledge. I do believe that people in the Biden administration genuinely think that first solar is quote, American made solar power. When in reality, all we're doing is stoking demand for a critical material. By the way, tellurium is one of the least abundant elements in the Earth's crust. It exists uh, at a level of one part per billion. And by comparison, as we outline in the piece, there's three times as much gold, 80 times as much silver, and 1,800 times more uranium. Um, there's barely any of it. China produces almost all of it. And you can't make CAD telluride without tellurium. And so, yes, we manufacture panels, um, they might, you know, um, use uh, vapor deposition methods to turn 
the you know cat telluride powder into a thin film that is you know photoactive and and works in a solar panel but if you don't have access to the raw material you and they, they say themselves we went into their risk factors in their annual report you know but heaven forbid you open up um sec filings these days as an analyst um and and they say this is the exact quote from their annual report quote several of our key raw materials and components in particular cad telluride <laughs> and substrate glass and manufacturing equipment are either single sourced or sourced from a limited number of suppliers and their failure to perform could cause blah 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 um they're talking about china and they're playing a game where um, they like to enjoy the benefits of being perceived as being liberated from the polysilicon supply chain so they could tell their investors a story and have access to the tsunami, the fire hose of cash that the Inflation Reduction Act enables, while not denying, but certainly minimizing by omission, this huge Achilles heel that they have, which is China controls the supply chain. And um, everywhere we look, we see the same thing. And, and so if Kyle Bass is true, which is how we end the piece, look, if what he presented at the Hudson Institute proves prescient, um, you know, the specific fate of First Solar and their access to tellurium will be the least of our concerns. Um, but this story should be an important wake-up call, even where we think we have circumvented China's illegal tactics um, to gain monopolistic footholds at, at key pinch points. Um, even there, if you look hard enough and we know how and where to look, um, you, you find the same thing over and over again. And then on the Chinese side, is this just a question of righting historical wrongs in their mind, shifting the century of humiliation into the century of supremacy? Uh, or, or is there a strategic vision? Does she think that there's a window? Or, or yeah. what's your perception of, of Chinese leadership's uh, willingness to perhaps engage in conflict right now? Is, is there a window of opportunity that might be closing? So it's almost like you read the piece, uh, Richard, and, and to be clear, you didn't, but we closed the piece by saying, you know, in the same way that Europe's dependence on Russian energy, which was built up over decades, undoubtedly emboldened Putin to overplay his hand in Ukraine. One of our concerns is that Xi might follow the same course, knowing full well the cards that he has at his disposal that we gave him. Look, I was in the solar industry when China illegally monopolized the entire front end of that supply chain. Um, I could tell that story we have in writing and on various podcast appearances. I know the playbook, which is why it's easy for us to, like as soon as I saw the Reuters story that we quoted in this piece, I knew there was a piece because that, that Reuters story ended, you know, and referred to it as American made. And they ended their piece by saying, quote, solar project developers in the US have flocked to first solar's cadmium telluride products, partially because the technology does not rely on polysilicon a raw material primarily made in China and used in the vast majority of panels. I know from my industrial experience that we don't do any mining uh, of hard to get metals anymore. It's almost all done by China. And without even looking, I, I guessed that um, tellurium would be the pinch point that China controls. And sure enough, with five minutes of Googling, we proved it to ourselves and, and a piece was born. Our fear, and look, any Western analyst who says they know what's going on inside of China uh, should be met with a dubious eye. Uh, as much as I personally travel to the country and have great friends there and have a great admiration for the people of China, I have no idea what's going on in Xi's inner circle. It does, by all accounts, appear to be sort of a Stalinistic, uh, fear-driven leadership style where people disappear and there's show trials and all of those things. And historically speaking, such people aren't exactly, um, you know, 
the systems they create don't do a very efficient job of bringing hard truths to them. <laughs> and so hmm. it's entirely plausible that G might overplay his hand. Uh, again, using the exact cards that we gave him uh, in, in an analogous way to how Putin overplayed his hands based on Europe's utter dependence on his energy resources. So I, I guess at the risk of ending this on a somber note, maybe the question to ask is if you could relay a message to leadership in Beijing and Washington, what would you like to impart on them? What is the wisdom that the chicken coop, the collective minds, the brain trust of Doomberg can impart on, on leadership on both sides there? Um, I would focus our efforts to leadership on the home front um, because this is where we live and this is where our children are. And um, we are proud patriots of, of the U.S. I myself am an immigrant to the country and became a citizen after several decades of contributing to the economy and um, love the U.S. and want to see it prosper. And um, one of the key drivers of Doomberg is to educate. We have actually a fair number of government officials who subscribe, uh, usually via their personal accounts, and we get um, an outreach a week from congressional staffers or, um, or you know, chiefs of staffs of, of various politicians. And to the extent that we can influence policy, um, we would not be in such positions if we had a more rational physics-based approach to um, uh, to our economy. And um, if, if, if we could remove the cards that President Xi has, he would be less likely to overplay them. Uh, but we can't control what goes on in China. And um, I wouldn't want to deliver any messages to Xi because I might get disappeared. <laughs> uh, I'm not worried about being disappeared by the Biden administration. Um, you know, I, I'm worried about perhaps uh, being canceled on social media. Uh, but uh, I'm not actually concerned about my physical safety. I, don't, I do not think that the, the U.S. political system has, has dissolved to that point yet. Um, partisan uh, bickering uh, and various indictments and, and lack of indictments notwithstanding. Well, I think that's a good place to maybe yeah. put a pin yeah. on this conversation. <laughs> sure. As always, Doomberg, this was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, hey guys, I really appreciate it and, yeah. um, and happy, happy to do it again. Um, and uh, congratulations on all your success as well. It's always a great discussion with you guys and, and really, really enjoyed it. Yep. Likewise. Work, thank you. Thank you. That was, that was fantastic. We love reading what you write and we're going to keep on doing that. It's, uh, awesome. it's an amazing thing. Where, where, uh, why don't you uh, tell our audience where they can find you specifically? Yeah, uh, Um We write six to eight pieces a month. Um, uh, on a pretty good cadence. And um, we, we recently left Twitter and are focusing on Substack Notes, which is their competitive offering. You know, we, we, we would rather lose with our partners than uh, win in spite of an antagonist and um, dance with the one that brought you. So we have decided that we're no longer going to be active on Twitter and that account is on lurker mode. Um, and we're all in on the Substack experiment. Uh, Doomberg.substack.com. Uh, and again, I really appreciate the opportunity and, and uh, looking forward to the next one. Thank you so much. Look forward to the next one as well.